Welcome to this, the fourth episode in my series about the British Mahdist Wars in Sudan in the late 19th century. In episode 47, I explained how Britain got tangled up in Sudan and why General Charles Gordon ended up in Khartoum. So I don't want to go over all that ground again. But for those of you who missed it or maybe need a reminder, here's a very quick overview. In the 19th century, Britain's client state, Egypt, had built its own empire in Sudan. But by 1881, they were faced by a Sudanese revolt against their rule, led by the Mahdi. The Egyptians appealed to the British government for help, and the British allowed General Charles Gordon to assist the Egyptians evacuate the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. He was, however, under strict instructions from British Prime Minister William Gladstone that overseeing the withdrawal was the absolute extent of his brief. Arriving in Khartoum in February 1884, Gordon decided that, having evacuated Egyptian civilians, he would organise a defence of the city. Within a month, he was besieged by the Mahdist forces. With Gordon besieged in Khartoum, British Prime Minister Gladstone was in a dilemma. He would, quite frankly, have left Gordon to stew, seeing as he had deliberately ignored his job description. The British press and his political opponents disagreed and shouted very loudly that Gordon must be saved. Just for good measure, Queen Victoria joined in this chorus. So reluctantly, Gladstone agreed to send an expeditionary force to Egypt to rescue Gordon. It was commanded by Britain's most able general of the day, or at least in his own opinion, General Sir Garnet Wolseley. Wolseley decided that the best way to reach Khartoum was to follow the Nile upriver from Egypt. Whilst it was a long route, it did have the advantage of plenty of water for his troops. But assembling his army would take time, and the British wanted to show both the Egyptian Khedive and the British public that they were taking the rapidly deteriorating situation in Sudan seriously. So, in the meantime, they diverted British troops en route to India to the Red Sea coastline of Sudan. Now, I've talked about this particular expedition and the British victories at El Teb and Tamai in episodes 53 and 65, respectively. Whilst those victories under General Graham had offered the possibility of creating a new route to rescue Gordon in Khartoum, Sir Garnet Wolseley was determined to march up the Nile instead. And there were some good reasons. As I said just now, the Nile offered an abundant supply of water for his troops, unlike a dash across the desert from the coast. Moreover, despite their defeats at El Teb and Tamai, the local Mahdist general, Osman Digna, was far from defeated. His men had merely moved into the eastern mountains, blocking the route inland from the coast. Graham's force, quite frankly, was too small to clear and then maintain a safe route to Khartoum. The only show in town was the Nile expedition, and the only showman in town was Sir Garnet Wolseley, whom Gilbert and Sullivan had parodied in their song, the very model of a modern major general. With Wolseley's army now ready to march from Egypt, Graham's expedition was wound down and his men re-embarked on their original journey. All eyes were now on Wolseley. On the 25th of September, 1884, London ordered him to advance. Based upon his experiences during the Red River campaign in Canada, Wolseley saw the Nile not just as water supply, but as a transport route. His army wouldn't march to Khartoum. All 5,000 of them would take boats. The only problem, well, apart from the distance, was that his boats would have to manage their way through a series of rapids. Not that this daunted Wolseley. He had a plan. Back in Canada, he'd used voyageurs, skilled local boatmen, to get his boats through similar obstacles. All he needed was those same men to cross the Atlantic and use their skills on the Nile. After a two-month delay, 
380 Canadian voyageurs arrived at Wolseley's camp in Egypt. Not bad timing, but that delay would come home to roost. Wolseley was joined on this campaign by his fabled Ashanti ring of officers, whom he had worked closely with in the past. Rivers Buller, Major Generals William Butler and Henry Brackenbury, Sir Evelyn Wood and Sir Herbert Stewart. The general was doing his best to keep in touch with Gordon in Khartoum via a series of Arab riders recruited and operating under the command of a young and promising intelligence officer, Major Herbert Kitchener. On the 17th of November, Kitchener brought a message from Gordon. Dated the 4th of November, it stated that Khartoum only had enough food to hold out for another 40 days. At the pace of his Nile expedition, even with the Canadian boatman now on board, there was no way that Wolseley could reach him by the end of December. The Nile doesn't run in a straight line. If you were to look at a map uh, coming from the mouth of the Nile, it comes down through Egypt towards Sudan. And effectively, when it enters Sudan, rather than travelling straight on towards upriver, towards Khartoum, it actually switches back on itself, almost like a, a, I suppose you could almost look at it like a sickle, you know, in the old Soviet Union flag, the, the hand sickle for cutting corn. So it, it suddenly goes back up on itself before then heading towards Khartoum. He needed a plan B. And being Sir Garnet, he had one. He would send a flying column of about 1,500 men, mainly mounted on camels, on a shortcut across the desert, effectively from the point of the sickle to the handle, cutting out that whole switchback on the Nile. And there, they would wait for the main river column under Major General William Earl to catch them up. Wolseley calculated that just their presence that far up the Nile would rattle the resolve of the Mahdi. Indeed, he privately thought that the Mahdi would panic and lift the siege long before the British reached Khartoum. And then, Wolseley could meet Gordon on the banks of the Nile, yet another glory in his already glittering career. Whilst the Flying Column, also called the Desert Column, was waiting for General Earl's force to join them, Wolseley's Chief of Intelligence, Colonel Charles Wilson, would take a boat up the Nile to conduct a reconnaissance of Khartoum and check on Gordon. He would be accompanied by a small detachment of British redcoats to give the defenders heart and to provide advance warning to the Mardists that the British army was on its way. However, Wilson was given strict orders by Wolseley to neither evacuate Gordon nor to let his redcoats disembark in the city. The flying column, racing across the desert, was to be commanded by one of Wolseley's famous Ashanti ring of officers, Major General Sir Herbert Stuart. Sir Herbert Stuart was the son of a Hampshire clergyman. He was seen as one of the rising and most talented styles in the army. Having attended Staff College, as well as being called to the bar, in other words, he was a qualified lawyer who could operate in a courtroom. He had also played county cricket for Hampshire. He had been captured at the Battle of Majuba in South Africa, and then had served Wolseley at the Battle of Tel el-Kabir in Egypt. In the previous year, he had commanded the cavalry during General Graham's campaign on the Red Sea coast of Sudan, and had been at the battles of El Teb and Tamai. As I said earlier, I've produced stories about both those battles. And his effectiveness in those battles had earned him a knighthood. The main part of Stuart's desert column consisted of the Camel Corps. This eclectic unit, comprising regular British troops riding camels, was formed into four regiments. The Guards Regiment, with men from the Coldstream, Scots and Grenadier Guards, along with the Royal Marines. The Mounted Infantry, as the name implies, drawn from the infantry regiments. The Light Regiment, formed from the Hussars, who had exchanged their normal horses for camels. And last, but by no means least, the Heavy Camel Regiment. Like the Light Regiment, it was made up of cavalrymen, 
from the prestigious regiments such as the Household Cavalry, the Dragoon Guards, uh, the Dragoons and the Lancers. This Camel Corps, especially the Heavy Camel Regiment made up from those prestigious cavalry units, was the unit for anyone who was anyone wanting to join the action in Sudan. One wag called it London Society on Camels, whilst Queen Victoria supposedly had to intervene to prevent the Prince of Wales joining them on active service. One guard's officer who did make the cut was Lieutenant Frank Baden-Powell, whose younger brother, Robert, would go on to defend Mafeking during the Boer War and still later establish the Boy Scouts. The cavalry regiments were joined in the desert column by the 19th Hussars, who were mounted on Syrian ponies, and an infantry battalion, the 1st Royal Sussex Regiment. Rounding off Stuart's force were three batteries of Royal Artillery guns and the Royal Naval Brigade armed with a Gardiner machine gun. As Stuart's 2nd in command, Wolseley chose Colonel Fred Burnaby, a larger-than-life all-action Victorian hero. 42-year-old Burnaby had been commissioned in the prestigious Royal Horse Guards and had spent the last 20 years seeking the adventures of the 19th century. He was a skilled linguist who ballooned across the Channel and had travelled through war-torn Central Asia, having several scrapes with both the Afghans and the Russians. Standing at 6 foot 4 inches and weighing in at 20 stone, the larger-than-life Burnaby was supposed to be one of the characters that George MacDonald Fraser used as his model for Harry Flashman. Be that as it may, Burnaby had arrived in Egypt looking for adventure the previous year. He had ended up volunteering his services to the Red Sea expedition under General Graham and had been wounded at the Battle of El Teb. The highly popular Burnaby then volunteered his services to help rescue Gordon, and Wolseley had attached him to the Desert Column. Interestingly, while Sir Garnet had appointed him as second in command, Burnaby was technically a volunteer, admittedly with a lot of military experience, but he was acting in no official military capacity. Third in command was Colonel Charles Wilson, the column's intelligence officer, but with the high-flying Stuart and the highly popular Burnaby ahead of him, there was little chance of him having to take command. Or was there? Listen to my next story about the Nile Expedition and the race to rescue Gordon in Khartoum to find out more. Due to the lack of camels, Stuart's shortcut took two weeks. And strange though it may seem, 1,500 British soldiers taking two weeks to march across the Sudanese desert had come to the attention of the Mahdi. As scouts from the 19th Hussars sighted the wells at Abu Klea on the 16th of January, they had a nasty surprise. Camped at the wells, blocking the British advance to the Nile, was a large Mahdist army, probably numbering something like 12,000 men. Incidentally, the officer who was second in command of the 19th Hussars on this expedition was a certain Major John French, who would go on to relieve Kimberley during the Boer War and command the British Expeditionary Force at the outset of the First World War. It was now obvious to Stuart that his force of roughly 1,500 men were going to have to fight their way to the Nile through a force that outnumbered him 8 to 1. That night, his column camped in a thornbush cereba, or temporary fort, about two miles short of the wells. It was a night punctuated by the constant drumming from the Mahdist army and shots being fired into the zariba by their snipers. As dawn rose on the 17th of January, 1885, the men of the desert column rose to the sight of a gathering Mahdist army to their left. Stuart sent out the 19th Hussars and some skirmishers to try and entice them to attack his fortified positions, but the dervish army were too wise to fall for that tactic. With the Mahdists not obliging him with a battle, Sir Herbert Stuart decided to advance towards the wells. He ordered all of the camel regiments to dismount 
and form into a large square to move forward. Their camels were moved into the centre of the square, whilst the 19th Hussars on their ponies were ordered to move outside to the left to continue skirmishing and draw Mardish troops away from the square. The front left face and side of the square would be formed by the mounted infantry, whilst the front right face would be held by the guards. The right side would be held by the Royal Marine Light Infantry, whilst the Royal Sussex Regiment would be positioned at the back right corner. Finally, Stuart positioned the men of the Heavy Camel Regiment at the back left, along with the Naval Brigade and their precious Gardner gun. Stuart and his staff officers would be in the centre of the square, a position made slightly more difficult than usual by the presence of all those camels. This giant moving square had proved effective both at El Teb and Tamai the year before, with one slight hiccup, as well as at Alundi during the Zulu War in 1879. Now advancing in a square requires precision, so that the square retains its integrity and doesn't open itself up to attack. The difference between those three previous occasions and this moment was that those squares had been comprised of infantry, whereas Stuart's square had a large contingent of cavalrymen now operating on foot, who didn't have that rigorous or tedious parade ground training of the infantry. Not only were the men forming the square inexperienced in this particular drill, especially the heavy brigade in the back left corner, but the square itself was hampered by over 2,000 irritable camels in the centre. And as they moved forward, they were further hampered by the uneven ground and the constant sniping from the Sudanese surrounding them. Armed with single-shot Remington rifles, the Sudanese sharpshooters had managed to use the natural cover of the rocks and gullies and vegetation that was available to creep within 400 yards of the square, and from that distance, their shots were having an impact. A constant cry of, man down, brought medical orderlies hurrying forward to tend the British casualties, and to remove them to camels, which were acting as ambulances to carry the injured along with the moving square. Stuart ordered his square to open volley fire in the direction of the snipers, which had the desired effect in lessening this particular nuisance. The emphasis here is on lessening the nuisance. It hadn't been diminished, and now skirmishers were sent out to deal with them. Most of the skirmishers were drawn from the King's Royal Rifle Corps and the Rifle Brigade, now serving with the Mounted Infantry. As these men were sharpshooters in their own right, they started to use the terrain to play the Mardis at their own game. At around 9.30am, Stuart wheeled his square to the right towards some elevated ground. Almost at that same moment, thousands of Mardists leapt out of a gully on the left and rushed towards the British square. In front of them, running for their lives, came the British skirmishers. An officer from the mounted infantry in the square bored at them to lie down so his men could present a volley fire. The skirmishers took one look at the frenzied warriors behind them armed with their razor-sharp swords, spears and daggers and ignored his shouts. All bar one of the skirmishers made it back to the square. But that delay meant the Mardis were now just 200 yards from the square. Finally, the British soldiers in the square facing that oncoming rush were able to fire a volley. It seemed to have no effect. The Mardis just kept coming. In my previous stories about the battles of El Teb and Tamai, I introduced you to the Bajor warriors of eastern Sudan. At Abu Klir, the majority of the Mardist army were from the Bagara tribe. The Bagara were traditionally nomadic cattle herders, who inhabit the land stretching from Lake Chad across the Sahel to western Sudan, and they were some of the Mardis' earliest and most loyal supporters. They came from a society with a strict honour code. A man wasn't a man unless he killed either a wild animal or an enemy in close combat. Whilst the snipers with their Remington rifles came from South Sudan, 
the Bagara eschewed modern European weapons and preferred to fight with swords and spears, man to man. They didn't even bother with shields. And it was these Bagara warriors, wearing white robes and many with shaven heads, who were now charging the British square. Another volley, and still they came. It was only when the Mardis were just 80 yards from the square that the British Martini Henry rifles seemed to finally have an impact. The Sudanese advance stalled, but it didn't break. In a move that some British officers thought was almost from the parade ground at Aldershot, the Mardists, without any obvious marshalling, wheeled right, racing along the left-hand side of the square. Their target was the back left-hand corner. The advance of the British square had not been without difficulties. Not only had the men of the desert column had to endure the Sudanese snipers and the difficult terrain, but the cavalrymen, as I said earlier, were not used to infantry tactics and drill. It was very hard for a square, even one composed of infantry, to keep its shape, especially when you had 2,000 camels in the centre of it. And as those camels were being used as ambulances, they had to keep stopping to pick up the wounded. And once the camels sat down to collect their patients, many simply refused to get back up again. The officers at the front of the square didn't adequately compensate for the lack of infantry experience, the terrain and those blinking camels. Slowly the square had started to lose its cohesion, and no more so than at the back left-hand corner, and the Mardists had spotted this weakness. Led by their sheikhs mounted on horses and carrying their Islamic banners, the Sudanese warriors sped towards that rear corner. It's now that Captain Sir Charles Beresford, in charge of the naval brigade, decided to take decisive action. Sir Charles Beresford had become a bit of a hero in British military circles uh, following the bombardment of Alexandria during Urabi Pasha's revolt back in 1882, the revolt that was put down by General Wolseley at the Battle of Tel el-Kabir. He's yet another one of those outstanding Anglo-Irish leaders who litter British military history, the 38-year-old hailed from Waterford. The Naval Brigade's Gardiner gun was his pride and joy, and with it, he fully believed he could turn the battle against the Mardists. I mean, modern Victorian technology versus medieval-style Sudanese warriors. What could possibly go wrong? Well, you're about to find out. The Gardiner gun was an early machine gun, cranked by hand. And whilst Gardiner's gun had performed well in trials for the Admiralty back in London, it seemed to struggle with the desert's heat. General Graham had had problems both with Gatling and Gardiner guns jamming during his campaign on the Red Sea coast the year before and it was about to happen again with calamitous results. Colonel Fred Burnaby, Stuart's second-in-command, ordered the troops of the Heavy Camel Regiment to wheel out of the square to allow Beresford to run his machine gun out in front of the British lines to have a clear field of fire on the advancing Mardists. Having exited the safety of the square, Beresford, the hero of Alexandria, personally chose to crank the handle of the machine gun. The gardener splotted into life, firing a rapid 70 rounds into the oncoming enemy, and then... Click. Click. The gun had jammed. The Bagara warriors, with their contempt for these newfangled weapons, swept down on Beresford and his gun crew. As his seven-man command was overrun, Beresford was knocked over by a dervish warrior and fell dazed underneath the gun carriage. When he came to and staggered to his feet, he was simply swept along with a mass of tightly packed Sudanese heading towards that back corner of the square. He later recounted they were so tightly pressed that he... He later recounted that they were all so tightly pressed together that he couldn't reach his sword and that Sudanese warriors pressed against him couldn't manoeuvre their hands to attack him. It had all the energy, terror and hopelessness of a crowd stampede. Watching this throng charging towards the gap made as the heavy brigade had parted to let Beresford through, 
Colonel Wilson remembered thinking to himself, by Jove, they'll be in the square. The heavy camel regiment, already not as tightly lined up as the soldiers at the front of the square, not as used to infantry drill, and not used to actually using infantry rifles, now desperately scrambled to reform their line. Burnaby, realising that his order to part for Beresford had now fatally weakened this corner, raced along the outside of the square, instructing the cavalrymen in how to rapidly reform their lines. But it was too late. The left rear of the square dissolved as the torrent of Mardist surged into the breach. A mounted sheikh actually rode into the square, planted his Islamic flag firmly into the ground and started to read aloud from the Quran. He was shot by an unknown British soldier and fell on top of his banner. The Battle of Abu Clear descended into a soldier's battle. Officers were no longer able to issue smartly actioned orders. It was a hand-to-hand fight to the death. Amidst this chaos, as the square fell back in disarray, Fred Burnaby was surrounded by the Mardists. He took a spear in his throat and fell to the ground. Private Steele clubbed his way through the Mardists and somehow kept them away from the stricken officer. The Mardist throng pushed into the square, looking to attack the rear ranks on the other walls. Stuart's position was precarious. And then two things happened that were to save the British army at Abu Klea. The first was those 2,000 camels. <laughs> yes, those same irritable camels who'd helped break the shape of the square, now without realising it, were to play a crucial role in saving the British army. Because they acted as a solid barrier, preventing the Mardists from running across the centre of the square. The second thing that happened was that the rear ranks of the other parts of the square turned inward to fire on the Sudanese warriors. The first off the mark were the mounted infantry under the command of Percy Marling VC. Do you remember him? He featured in my story about the Battle of Tamai the previous year when he had received Britain's highest award for valour, the Victoria Cross. They were joined by the men of the Guards and the Royal Marines, whilst over on the right of the square, the men of the Royal Sussex found themselves slightly elevated so they were now able to fire over the camels into the Mardists. The Mardists, who just seconds before had been sweeping into the square, now found themselves trapped in a deadly crossfire. They were in something akin to a huge football crowd stampede, and the only way out was being blocked by hundreds of their fellow warriors trying to enter the square behind them. The centre of the square became a killing zone, bullets flying in from all directions at the Mardists. British soldiers were caught in the crossfire too, not least the senior officers in the centre of the square. Stuart's horse was shot from beneath him, and as he went down, three Mardists made their way through the maze of camels to attack him. Colonel Wilson shot one of them, while some men of the mounted infantry killed the others. The noise and sheer adrenaline can hardly be imagined. The shouting and swearing of the British soldiers, the notorious smoke of the Martini Henry rifles, the deafening noise of guns being fired in close quarters. A sergeant from the mounted infantry fired his rifle half an inch from Percy Marling's ear. The war cries of thousands of Mardists, the screams of the wounded and the dying, the bellowing of panic-struck camels, many of whom were being mowed down by the British bullets. Some bullets hit boxes of ammunition on the camels, which started to explode, and as the terrified camels tried to escape through the only gap in the square, they collided with the incoming Mardists. It was chaos. As the British fire swept across the square, the ranks of the Sudanese were thinned, and the corner of the square started to reform trapping the last remaining Mardists inside. The Sudanese advantage had been lost. Outside of the square, their army withdrew in order and slowly disappeared from the battlefield, almost as swiftly as they had arrived. The battle inside the square had lasted just ten minutes. And after the mayhem and noise of those frantic ten minutes, Major Lionel James Trafford wrote in his diary, 
of an absolute, almost eerie silence. And then, despite their lips being cracked and their tongues bloated from dehydration, the British soldiers started to cheer. They cheered not so much for their victory as, quite frankly, for their deliverance. Around 70 of their comrades had been killed and a similar number wounded, 10% of the desert column. Private Steele was found still protecting Fred Burnaby's body. Apart from the spear to his throat, the top of Burnaby's head had almost been cleft off by a Mardis sword. Steele would receive the Distinguished Conduct Medal for staying with the fallen giant. Around him, officers and soldiers broke into tears. Such was the popularity of Colonel Fred Burnaby. Gunnar Albert Smith was awarded the Victoria Cross for defending both his gun and his injured officer, Lieutenant Guthrie, simply armed with the gun's handspike, which he'd used to fend off and then kill a Sudanese attacker. The British counted over 800 dead Mardists inside the square and a further 700 across the battlefield. Their losses have been numerically huge compared to the British, although their losses as a percentage of their force that day were similar to Stuart's, about 10%. But once more, the Sudanese have proved to be both fanatical and brave enemies. For only the second time in the colonial period, an army had got inside a British square. And had it not been for the barrier presented by the camels, and for the about turn in the rear ranks on the other sides of the square, creating that crossfire, things might have been very different. Back in Britain, the battle was celebrated as a close-run thing, where the British force was minutes away from disaster. A disaster that was only prevented by individual courage, tenacity and British stoicism. It was captured in a poem by Sir Henry Newbolt. The sand of the desert is sodden red, red with the wreck of the square which broke. The gatlings jammed and the colonel's dead, and the regiment blind with dust and smoke. But the voice of a schoolboy rallies the ranks. Play up, play up, and play the game. Victorian British imperial patriotism at its very best. But Newbolt had in fairness taken an artistic licence that Hollywood would have been proud of. The sand of the desert was red not with the blood of the British broken square, but principally all those Sudanese warriors. The colonel was of course Burnaby, but he wasn't colonel of one of the regiments there. He was present as a volunteer. And the square had not been so much broken as been opened, possibly by Burnaby himself, to allow Beresford and his machine gun out. And of course, it wasn't a Gatling gun that jammed. It was Beresford's gardener gun. And while we're on the subject of Beresford and his gardener gun, amazingly, he survived the battle and was able to return home to his wife, Ellen Gardner. <laughs> you couldn't make it up, could you? The British came away with an increased respect for an enemy who'd come uncomfortably close to besting them with their courageous charge. But that very courageous charge was the Mardis' undoing. Had the Sudanese used their snipers to grind down the desert column, Stuart's square may have succumbed to thirst, allowing the Sudanese to charge a much weaker British army. And yet, history's not about ifs. The fact was that the British had seen off a determined Mardis' attack and were now able to continue their advance on the Nile. And from there, they could rescue Gordon in Khartoum. And the fate of Stuart's column as they marched towards the Nile, and the attempt to finally rescue Charles Gordon from Khartoum, will be the subject of my next story. Well, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoy my stories from history, then join my supporters club to get members-only exclusive talks. Recently I did one about William Manley, the only man to ever receive the Victoria Cross and the Iron Cross. Amazing story. In the meantime, why not check out all my other stories here on the History Chat podcast. Thanks for your support. Keep well, and I'll speak to you again very soon.